Today's episode is truly unique and one that I've looked forward to for a while. Over the course of the series, I've interviewed several of my friends, all of whom have lost their dads at a young age. I've received some wonderful feedback, not only from others in similar positions, or friends of my guests who lived through these tough times with them, but many have told me it has inspired them to reevaluate and treasure the relationships they have with their parents today. One of the reasons I started this podcast was born out of my incomprehension of knowing how I would react if I lost one of my parents. That is why I'm so inspired by anyone who has lost one and continues to live on with a positive attitude. Well, today I'm joined by the man that I'm incredibly proud to call my dad. In my eyes, he's completely flawless. A constant gentleman with incomparable loyalty, morality, manners, patience, and with a sense of humour to match. To this day, I've never seen him raise his voice, lose his cool, or utter a bad word about anyone. A talented solitaire player, chartered surveyor, DIY master, and fountain of knowledge on all things war-related. Welcome, Dad, and thank you for being my extraordinary, ordinary guest this week. Now, the point of getting you on this podcast was not so much to praise you and secure my position as your favourite son. It's actually because you two lost your dad at a very young age. This is not something we have spoken about in any great depth. As a result, my knowledge of him is fairly limited to the fact that he was called Alistair, he was a proud Scotsman, and he managed property or worked in property. Is that right? No, he was involved in insurance. He was involved in insurance, right, that goes to show. And was a keen huntsman. Was a keen huntsman? No, he was keen on on, on field sports. Field sports, yeah. such as shooting and fishing. Well, shooting in particular. That's what I meant. Yeah. Okay. Good. That's a relief. Okay. Good. Um, you are the youngest of three. That's correct. I got that bit right. Older brother Ian and older sister Jilly. So, you grew up in Scotland. That's well, mainly. I was born in Sussex, where my father, your grandfather, had a farm, and he worked in the city. And when I was about seven, he sold the farm and we moved back to Scotland. Okay. And then I was brought up in Scotland from the age of seven until I eventually left home. At what age? Well, I suppose, obviously I went off to boarding school and then I went off to university and then I went into the army. But because I wasn't married, home was still home, as it were. Mm -hmm. So it was really... Only when I got married in 1983, which was, um, my father died in 79, so quite a long, four, four years after he died, that I really left home. Right. And how old were you then? I was 26 when he died. Yeah. And you were, n so you were not living at home when he died? No, well, no, I wasn't. I was, I was serving in Northern Ireland and it was pretty obvious he was going to die. And so they gave me compassionate leave to come home. And then he did die. How long did you know that he was sick before you came home? Well, I knew he had cancer and I knew that he was being treated. But I think it was probably only about a month to six weeks before he died when I spoke to the army medical officer and I said, you know, these seem to be the symptoms he's got. And he said, well, those don't sound very positive to me, you know, I think he will die. So it, I guess it, it slowly dawned on me that he was going to die. And then when he was very ill at the end, and your grandmother let me know that she thought, you know, he was going to die. It was only then that I asked for compassionate leave to come home. Right. How long was he sick for? I suppose... Well, first of all, he had difficulty swallowing and they did various sort of minor operations but that didn't really worry us and then I suppose it was only really when they diagnosed cancer of the esophagus that I realised he was ill now from memory I would have thought that was probably about six months before he died so it wasn't a long illness. And what kind of a man was he? What was that upbringing in, in Scotland like? He was brought up He's born and brought up in Edinburgh. His father was a solicitor, who I never knew, because he died before I was born. And he was an alcoholic. And I think my father fell out with him because he didn't treat my grandmother, your great-grandmother, particularly well. I didn't actually know what he did. I didn't know whether he beat her up or simply shouted. Whatever it was, he fell out with his father. 
And he went off to the war, and the end of the war, he married your grandmother, and I'm not sure he ever spoke to his father again. I don't think his father, I don't know when his father died. I think his father died after he got married, but he certainly didn't come to the wedding. And so I, I know absolutely nothing about my my grand my paternal grandfather. My grand my father then moved with my mother down to the south after he left the army. He came out. He'd been wounded in North Africa, and they met because she nursed him at Stratford Hospital. They went. He got a job working in tobacco with Wills, which was was a family connection in Bristol. Um, and then after that, he went to agricultural college. And then I then. Obviously, I think my mother came into some money and they bought the farm and they moved to Sussex. And so I was brought up there until, as I said earlier, we moved back to Scotland when I was seven. And then my father worked full time at Lloyd's, but full time only to the extent that we lived in Scotland at home. He worked from home. He came down to London once a month. So we had this pretty idyllic home life to the extent that both parents were there all the time. My father worked in his study in the morning and then in the afternoon we'd go for walks and we were allowed, although we didn't own the land around the house, we were allowed to shoot um, vermin and so I shot a lot of vermin. Ian was never that interested in shooting but he'd sometimes join me and we'd go for walks on the beaches, we'd had friends to stay, the Flartis were the great family friends, they were a family of eight children they always came to stay in the holidays because they were in the army, they didn't have much, much revolt. They, it, ours was a sort of home base for them, I suppose. And it was a very easy, happy-go-lucky existence, really. And what was he like as a dad? Was he strict? Was he a disciplinary? He was, was very he... strict. I think the whole level of attitude of parents to children in those days was a much higher degree of discipline. You're, your, he was very strict. He was very keen on punctuality, on tidiness, on manners, and he was really hard if you cross, if you didn't um, do as he wished. But his, although he got very cross, it always blew over, and then it was back to back to normal. So that, you know you get a you get an enormous great bollocking, and then that was the end of it. And then as we grew older if he wanted to give us a, a ticking off, he'd send for us to his study and uh, he'd tick us off in his study. But he was very strict. He had a good sense of humour. He um, he was a bit of a raconteur. He enjoyed telling a joke. He could see the funny side of things. He was certainly not pompous. But as I say, he was a stickler for doing things properly. Do you think that was born out of his having been in the army, or do you reckon that's what his parents were like and it was a generational thing? I don't know. I think quite a lot of our parents' generation were strict. I think those that had lived through the war were much stricter than those... I mean, I remember those parents, friends' parents who were a bit younger, who hadn't served in the war, were much more relaxed than my parents were. And I don't know whether it was something to do with the war that made them as strict as they were, but certainly his peer group, they were all similarly strict, I think. That's my recollection, anyway. And was Mama easier going? Did she play good cop to his bad cop, or was she from a similar ilk? I think that women in those days were much more supportive of their husbands. I think today, mothers are more supportive of their children, whereas in those days, wives more supportive of their husbands. So their husbands definitely came first. What their husbands said went nilly-willy and then the next thing on their priority was, was the children. So there was a slight difference. It's not to say that we were loved any less, but there was a difference in emphasis. And I think that mothers in those days undoubtedly put their husbands first. And there's a bit of an in-family joke in our family that you were the favourite. Is that true? What was your relationship with your dad like? I think I was the youngest and therefore I, I probably was my mother's, um, not favourite, but certainly 
we were we were very close, and I don't and I think that both my siblings would probably acknowledge that. As far as my father was concerned, I wasn't aware of any. I think if any if if there was a favourite for my father, it would have undoubtedly been Julie, my sister. Just because she was the only girl. Because she was the girl. Right, right. Yeah. So they they had one of those father daughter relationships. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then she got they they had Julie when they were quite young and. She, in turn, got married when she was 21 and had children. And so my, your, your grandmother, my mother, was a grandmother at 42, and which is you know, extraordinarily young to be a grandparent. And then the Lockets used to come up and spend a lot of time at Arrett's Mill. So they both got to know the grandchildren very, very well. And in turn, the, they were very, all the Lockets were very, very fond of them, particularly of your grandfather. Was he a more compassionate and easygoing grandfather than he was a father? Did he soften in his old age? I think he probably mellowed. Yeah. I think I don't think he was necessarily much less strict, but I think he was I think he probably mellowed a bit, yes. And he was obviously a keen fisherman and shooter. Well he had been yes, he he got he was wounded in the war and He'd shot as a child. He never fished, as far as I know. He played golf. He played rugby. I think he might have even played rugby for, in the army. He was keen on watching sport. He didn't really play. I mean, even because your grandmother wasn't much good at ball games, although I think they'd started off playing golf together. I'm not sure that, that really went very far. So they never. We, we, we didn't play many ball games as a family. We certainly didn't play tennis. We did play squash at home because there was a squash court nearby but because he was he was quite lame he couldn't run and so it wasn't you know the road wasn't much we didn't play sport as a family at all and his principal occupations was probably walking he walked a huge amount he walked the dog every day he's very good with the dog and he watched a bit of sport, but I must say he read, he, he worked, he was just sort of, yeah, it's funny really. I mean, when you think how, how much sport different families played, we didn't really seem to play any at all. So, you know, as far as his hobbies was concerned, I suppose it was reading, walking in the family. So when you grew up shooting and fishing, I know you've told me stories about you going out to shoot pigeons and rabbits to make pocket money as you sold them to the local butcher. Was that mainly by yourself rather than with yeah. with him? Yeah, he, my father used to give me a hundred cartridges at the beginning of every holidays and that was it. He didn't buy any more cartridges for us after that, but we could sell any of the vermin we shot. And a rabbit I could get three and sixpence for, a pigeon I could get about one and sixpence for, and the cartridge was sixpence. So rabbits were quite good business. And the butcher, as you quite rightly say, used to buy this stuff off me. So I'd go into Montrose every, every time I had something to sell, flog it to the butcher. He never said no. My father was convinced it just got added on to his meat bill. <laughs> anyway, and with that catch, I, I bought more cartridges. So I was never short of cartridges. Ian was never that interested. He was never that involved. I mean, he, he'd come out shooting, but not very often so it was it was um the dog was mine dog was critical to that exercise so i spent a lot of time at arrett's mill wandering around shooting vermin as a result shooting and fishing is something that you've done a lot of with ferg and i so well, what what was the thing that you did the most with your dad what yeah, your fondest well, memories with the him? fishing was really through grandma and through papa your mm -hmm. great grandfather and he was a great shot he was a good shot too so he very much encouraged both the shooting and the fishing, and the fish both, well, there was both shooting and fishing at Granham, and so that's where that came from. But certainly, my father encouraged us to get involved with the fishing. Well, he encouraged all our interests. He was very keen that we should have interests, and you know, so he was a, a real enthusiast that we got involved in fishing and shooting. And he, but he didn't. He, I don't think he ever fished himself. So what were your fondest memories of time spent with him then? What did you guys, obviously you mentioned walking and, and spending time with the dog. What 
were your fondest memories of him? And when when was he at his happiest? I suppose we used to walk I, before when we came up to Scotland from the south. I was six or seven, seven I think, and or maybe I was a bit younger. Maybe I was only six. Anyway, there was a there was a term when I didn't go to school. And my mother taught me at home. And so there were just the three of us. And I used to go for a walk every afternoon with my father. And I suppose that in a way set the scene that we used to go off uh, with a dog, walk along the beach. And I suppose my most intimate memories of my father are probably walking along the beach, chatting about things. And that was quite it was quite a, a frequent occurrence and he was interested in things and he had views on things and he was well read and yeah, he was a very very wise man so he was a he was a useful person to talk to was he easy to open up to was he did he talk about his time in the army did he talk about growing up were you able to be sort of vulnerable or talk about normal things with him or was it more you know I, I politics and career yeah, and... that generation never talked about the army or the war at all mm -hmm. they they might talk about other friends and where they'd served and what they'd done, but they never talk about their own experiences. I've got virtually no idea about my father's military career. I know that he joined the Sea Force. I know that he went into the commandos. I know that he went off to Achmacarry to train um, and that he went to, he landed in North Africa during that part of the campaign in, in American uniforms because Americans were thought to be more acceptable to the, the French in North Africa than perhaps the British would be. But I really know virtually nothing. So he never opened up about that. He didn't talk much about his childhood. And I don't know whether that's because he didn't get on with his father. Um, he never spoke about his brothers. He had two brothers. One brother, Ian, who went off to New Zealand, he never spoke about him, don't know anything about him at all. So he was quite a private person. And he very, I suppose, he, looking back at it now, he kept himself to himself. Hmm. Okay, so you then went to school at Gordonston, boarding school, and then you went to Reading for uni, went south, where you left with a gentleman's degree, which is, in today's terms, a fail, or a second, or a third, or whatever's lower than that, I imagine. I got 2-1, but it's not a competition. And then... <laughs> and then it was much harder to get... Um, <laughs> a, a, I mean, there were very few people got firsts in our day, and comparatively few got 2-1s. So the fact that they now dole them out like confetti... Well, you say that. You keep saying that. Yeah. What you're actually saying is me getting a 2-1 is exceptional. <laughs> now, after that, you went to Sandhurst. So... Two questions. Firstly, how old were you when you went to Sandhurst? I was. I went to Sandhurst when I was twenty-one. Right, and you then obviously joined the army, and Ian also joined RAF. Was it? He joined the Black Watch. Right, and he he'd already joined the Black Watch mm. because I had a university cadetship. I actually at university I was senior to Ian which was something that really bugged him. <laughs> I bet, and I bet you reminded him about it quite often. <laughs> okay, um, to, to what extent do you think you both joined up in that way? Or do you think it was related to the fact that your dad had done the same? I, I think it was a pretty... It was both a poor reflection on us and a reflection on <coughs> Scotland at that time. We didn't... We didn't know anybody who were bankers or accountants or... We knew people who farmed, people who were in the armed forces, and that was about it. So it was quite a, not rarefied, but a slightly narrow existence, I suppose. I mean, living in Angus, you know, there were no big cities or towns, so you know, we, didn't, we didn't know people who had what you might call normal jobs. And I think the, the army, a lot of my peer group went into the army. It just seemed a sort of good thing to do. So 
you know, we didn't have Ian and I, neither of us had any burning ambitions to do anything else. I suppose I was always quite interested in being a land agent, being a factor. That's why I read estate management. And so I got my, I got into Reading to read estate management, or London University it was then, Conscious Estate Management. I started reading estate management, and then I realised that if I joined the army, they'd pay, both pay me and pay all my fees. And my father was enthusiastic about that, and so I did it. I, only had, I knew I only had to serve for five years after university, but I got paid at university, I got accelerated probation, and I wasn't sure if I might stay in the army anyway. So it, it sort of, it wasn't necessarily a career decision I wanted to go into the army, but it was, it all panned out, it was all quite logical. And your dad was encouraging a bit purely from a financial point of view, or because he'd done it as well and that was no, what people did? Was, he was enthusiastic about the army. He thought the army was fantastic and he thought it was great experience and that we get travel and it was a good training even if you want to come into business, if you've been in the army, it would stand you in good stead. So he saw it as almost like a finishing school, I suppose. Right. And during those years away, both at Reading and in the army, I know that communication obviously wasn't, wasn't as it is today. Did you go up often? Were you writing letters? Were you in touch a lot? Yes. We... I wrote home every week, and your grandmother wrote to me every week. That was pretty normal for our generation. And then we'd probably ring and talk to each other on the telephone once every two or three weeks. And then my father came down to London every month. So when I was at, when I started off at the College of Estate Management, it was in London. So my father would come down once a month and I would go and have dinner with him in his club. And then straight after dinner, we'd ring up my mother. And that was, you know, that was, I mean, telephone calls were very expensive in those days and she obviously enjoyed the call, so that was, that was what we did, as it were. So I was in touch, and I did see my father at least every month. My mother would probably come down to London every two or three months, and then I'd certainly go home for all holidays. Mm. So yeah, I saw a lot of them. Yeah. And I feel as if the army was some of the happiest years of your life, in that you made your closest friends during those years, many of whom are me and Ferg's godparents, and you had hundreds of phenomenal stories from that time. Would that be fair to say? Yes, I think the, there was a great sort of sudden freedom. There was a financial freedom. You were living away from home. You were with other like-minded spirits. I was very lucky with my peer group in the army. And you know, they, there was no reason why they should have been such good mates, but they were and they remain good mates today, so I was lucky. And I think that the you know, the fact that I got into a Highland Regiment, which obviously was very, they played to my interest in Scotland anyway. We went to, we went, went to Belize, went to Gibraltar, did a couple of tours in Northern Ireland, which I enjoyed. So it was a, it was a fun time, and you got a lot of responsibility, and it was exciting. It, I mean, Northern Ireland was it was an exciting time. You had a lot of responsibility. There was danger, but you could have all the equipment you wanted. You could have all the facilities you wanted were given to you, and it was for real. So yeah, I, I enjoyed my time in the army very much. And you said earlier it was when you were in Northern Africa that you found out about your dad and you got compassionate leave to come home. How long did you come home for? Well, I was leaving. I decided to leave the army anyway. And I wanted to do the, the last tour in Northern Ireland. And I came back, the, well, I was intelligence officer and the, as intelligence officer, you came out early to do the takeover so that there was a, a seamless takeover. So my successor, who was Bob Mason, came out early and he as he would have done anyway he was very bright he was very much on the case and you know we we had gone through a lot of the takeovers so going home early wasn't a big problem i must have come home i would have thought i probably left two weeks early three weeks early <laughs> before the rest of the battalion 
and then I, I went home and I can't remember if my father was out of hospital, but anyway, ultimately went back into hospital. He had another operation, it didn't really work. And then it was pretty obvious he was going to die. And so us three siblings and your grandmother were all in and we, we stayed in a friend's house. In, he was in hospital in Edinburgh. We stayed in a friend's house. We went to hospital every day. And then we were all there when he died. And your grandmother and I were both in the room when he actually passed away. And how long did he then stay at home in the well, aftermath? Well, then we all went back to Arrett's Mill the day he died. And then we came back to Edinburgh for the funeral, which I suppose was about a week later. And then I was out of the army. So he died in November. I wasn't due to start work with Savills until January. So I spent a bit of time at Arrett's Mill and then your grandmother and I went off on holiday to Morocco. And she was very tired, she had all the letters to write. So we went to Morocco and just chilled out, sat on the beach for probably two or three weeks. And then I imagine we all had Christmas at Arrett's Mill. And then in January, I started my new job. So it was a bit weird because my father, who had been a businessman, he worked in insurance, knew that I was coming out of the army, knew that I'd got a job at Savills, but equally he wasn't there when I actually made that critical transition between the army and the civilian, civilian world. And I wasn't, I'd been quite well paid in the army for those days. And I wasn't, as a junior, unqualified surveyor. I wasn't very well paid, so I couldn't really afford to live in London. And obviously, had I lived, had my father lived, he would have sorted that out. But anyway, I might have discussed it with him before he died. Anyway, one way or another, um, your grandmother gave me an allowance and enabled me to start working and living in London. How were you both during that holiday to Morocco, how was she in the immediate aftermath to it? Do you remember her being, you said she was tired, do you remember her being sad? Do you remember her crying? Did you guys talk about it I in any great length or not, not no, really? I don't remember that many tears. She was obviously in a, in a state of shock. She was, she got married at 21. She'd had a blissfully happy marriage and they were very close, they'd never really been apart. And he died, he was 59. And I think she was absolutely in a state of shock. But no, there weren't that many tears. We used to, we, we, I remember quite a lot of laughs really. We used to try and remember funny times or share funny things that had happened together. And although she was in shock, I don't remember. I don't remember her ever being sort of miserable or hadn't or particularly sad about it. But obviously, she was. You know, the mainstay of her life had been removed. So yeah, she was. I think she was in a state of shock. I think there was. I think there were certain things that happened at around that time, which she had no recollection subsequently of because of the state of shock she was in and I don't think that we realised at the time just what a poor sort of mental place she was probably in mm. but she certainly didn't wander around in tears or anything like that. Did the three of you siblings talk much about it? Not only about her but about your dad and you grieve together we, or not a huge amount? I don't amount? think we ever talked about our feelings. I think that we we were obviously worried about your grandmother, but we, and there were practical things we had to sort out. There was, you know, the whole question of his will and probate and all of that stuff. And we were very inexperienced in that sort of areas. But anyway, we, we sort of muddled through that. But I don't, again, I don't remember us ever being, you know, crying in each other's arms. I mean, I can remember we were obviously upset. I, in fact, 
in some respects, I remember at the funeral, which was 10 days or two weeks after he died, being slightly surprised seeing other people in tears because we'd been through that stage and we couldn't really understand why anybody else would be crying at, you know, two or three weeks after he died. So I get maybe the worst in tears when he did die, but I, I, I can't remember them now. <laughs> You've been through that stage, but it had been two weeks. I and mean, that is an incredibly short stage. You know, most people, I imagine would grieve and cry about it for a year or longer than a year. Well, I think there's a difference between grieving and crying. I think that you can, you can carry on grieving, but you don't have to be in floods of tears. Mm. I mean, you can be very, you know, obviously when somebody who's been quite fundamental to your being is no longer there, that is a shock, a shock. but that we certainly I don't think we didn't grieve, it's just that we didn't, we weren't permanently in tears. Yeah, that's fair. You're not a, a, you're not a big cryer, basically. I think I've only seen you cry twice. And that was once when Mum had died, and once when David Balgoni died. So if you weren't able to talk about those feelings you said a great deal with your siblings, were there friends, or you're, were, you, were you with Mum but not married to no. Mum? Yet? No, I wasn't. No, I wasn't. I can't even, I can't, it's 40 years ago now, the, I think we just, I don't really remember, I mean, I'm, I'm, we, we, you know, we were together, we were very close, we, I'm sure we commiserated um, with each other, but we didn't. We didn't fall to pieces at all, we just got on with it. But you were younger than I am now. You were 25, 26, you said that? I happened? was, it was 1979, so I would have been 20, just 26. Okay, 26. So, were you one of the first to lose a parent out of your circle of friends? Yes, probably. I mean, obviously I can remember one or two people at school who'd lost a parent, even at prep school when I was seven or eight. But, it, I mean, to, even in those days, I mean, people didn't people live, didn't live as long then as they do now, mm. but 50 young was very young by anybody's standards. So to lose a father who was only 59 was undoubtedly very young. Yeah. And do you remember how your friends reacted at that time? In terms of your best friends in the army, did you receive a huge amount of letters? Were they... You're more about that. Did you go away with them? Were they just more available? And you know, how do they react? I don't remember. I can remember your grandmother getting a phenomenal number of letters. I'm sure that we did get some letters, but I think the, the focus of attention was very much on your grandmother. I can remember we had a memorial service in London, and one of my friends who had never met my father came to the memorial service and I have I was very touched and I have never forgotten it and I think it just goes to show that when you go to funerals it is appreciated hugely by the family and I and seeing this person at my father's memorial service who didn't even know him really highlighted that for me. That's actually been something that quite a few people have said on this podcast, that when something as awful as this happens, it's not always your best friends who react the best to it. There are some people that come out of the woodwork that said, oh, I knew your dad 40 years ago, who suddenly get reintegrated into the family and become incredibly uh, important parts in that immediate aftermath. I think the other thing, I remember people, it's very nice when people come and sympathise with you and empathise with you as well. I remember people saying, well, I know what you're going through because, you know, I lost my father. And I remember thinking, well, you may have lost your father, but you don't know 
what I'm feeling about losing my father because it's not the same. And mm. so it was very nice of people to to be sympathetic. But I remember being, it sounds rather uncharitable, almost slightly irritated that they then told me about their loss when as far as I was concerned, I was swimming around in my own loss. I didn't really want to know about their historic loss, mm. which is slightly um charitable but that's how I felt at the time yeah I'm not surprised a lot of people talk about being in like a dead dad club you know they say oh I've lost my parent lost a parent and actually feeling uncomfortable when someone else loses a parent because they feel maybe I should be the one to call them because I've been through it but actually every person's relationship with their dad's different every person grieves differently really there's nothing you can say irrelevant of if you've experienced or not other than to say this is what helped me, rather than saying, oh, I get it, you know, I've lost my dad, so I'm, I'm on the same page. So actually, yes. that doesn't surprise me. But and I remember when you, when Mama died, what hit you particularly hard was that you were now an orphan, you'd lost both of your parents. Do you, how did losing Mama and your second parent compare with losing Papa? You know, was the grieving process the same, or was it different? You know, you went through, Mama died when you were in your 40s rather than in your 20s. How did they compare? Well, I suppose you have a different relationship with your mother. And I was very close to her. You've already referred to the fact that I was the youngest and I might have been the favourite. And we, we undoubtedly did get along very well. And so losing her after a period when she had been my, well, my only parent and I'd been quite involved in helping her with her affairs and her property. And so it was, it, in a funny sort of way, I think it was almost more of a feeling of loss than losing my father. And I don't know whether that's because it was, it's more recent and therefore it's more vivid in my memory or whether or not it was a, a different form of loss but it it, 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 it it was nonetheless I did I did feel it very strongly um, and she she was living down here we saw a lot of her she was involved in our lives she, she saw you guys so there was a there was a, a big feeling of loss when she died did you react in a similar way? Were you, again, was it the case of being sad for a week or two or crying, you know, for a week or two and grieving for a longer process? Were you more open? Were you able to talk about it more? You had mum then? You had friends you'd known for longer? Or well, again, was it sort of a... Yes, in both of them. My father was very ill and it was obvious he wasn't going to get better. And therefore, being in hospital with him, I... I really wanted him to let go and, and go. I, it, was, it was awful for him, it was awful for us, and I didn't want him to carry on living. And so it was, it was sort of, in some respects, it was a bit of a relief when he died. With my mother, she did have Alzheimer's, but she was physically fine. And although I I suppose the difference there was that I found Alzheimer's, and I still find Alzheimer's, extremely upsetting. And I didn't, to see somebody you know and love losing their personality, losing their memory, losing their ability to know who you were, behaving in a strange way, repeating themselves, it, that was all very upsetting. But nonetheless, whereas with my father, I... I wished him to die with my mother, it was different. And I I wanted her to live, but I didn't really I didn't want to see the ongoing deterioration. So it was a it was a very different thing. I suppose ultimately that she died so soon after she went into the home was perhaps a relief was in truth probably a relief to all of us, but it didn't it didn't seem like that at the time. Mm. And 20 years on, with your friends being that much older and them probably having all lost maybe one parent by that time, 
Do you remember how they reacted in the immediate aftermath? Or they would have realised that you were obviously incredibly sad. Were they good at writing to you? Were they good at coming to funerals? Were they good at calling you? What's your memory of those first few weeks afterwards? I, I think, yes, I think that they were, I think they were good at expressing sympathy. I think that's really all you want. The people, people did know that your parents died. They did say how sorry they were. They did perhaps put their hand on your shoulder or whatever it was. There was some physical connection. Obviously, if they'd known your parents, then discussing their memories was very... If they could recall something that they could remember about your parent, that was very comforting and very rewarding. So I can remember scenes like that. And then I suppose, you know, when Francis' father died, which was, he died at the same age, he died shortly after my father. You know, we, we both knew what each other was going through, very, you know, we were the same age, same state and career, all that sort of stuff. And so that was, it was quite comforting to know other people also going through the same thing. Comforting to know that you guys are both going through the same thing and therefore became closer through it or became closer through it and discussed it? Did you sit down and go, how are you feeling well, today? Think, this is how yes, I'm I feeling. Think, I'm not sure that our generation spent a lot of time discussing our feelings with each other. So it was just unspoken? I think it was, um, I think it was, a, it was more of what you would probably call a bonding experience yeah. because you, you could both relate to each other Exactly, and therefore, I mean, I don't know whether we're we're sort of in some way our feelings are, are you know we we suffer from lack of ability to express our feelings that we don't want to share all this stuff, but we just didn't, and I think that was a generation thing. Uh, I think we could relate to other people going through something similar, but I don't think we really discussed it at all. Yeah, but I think I do find that unusual, really, only because I think if if I lost you or mum when I was well, even today, but say for argument's sake, I was twenty five, twenty six, like you were, I imagine I would probably have gone through a stage of not wanting to talk about it for a long time and being angry and upset about it and not really dealing with it, and then probably hugely wanted to talk about it, overshare it. This is sort of the, what I think a lot of people have gone through. Hugely oversharing, not oversharing, but sharing the amount you should. Or, you know, seeking out therapy or whatever it might be. And everyone seems to then feel better as a result. With your generation, it seems more so that it was never really delved into a huge amount. You sort of dealt with it by yourself and then came out of it when you came out of it. No? Yeah, that's probably right. I don't know why that's changed. I wonder, you know, what what is it about our generation in comparison to your generation? Is it to do with your parents? Do you look up to your parents and it filters I, I down? I wonder if it was because we were perhaps more slightly more distant from our parents in any event, because we'd spent a lot of time apart, because the the amount of you know, we wrote to each other, we spoke to each other, you know, perhaps once a week, once every ten days, once a week. but it, we were we there wasn't the constant and instant communication which you lot have got, so we were we were much more self reliant. When we had a difficulty, we we simply had to find a solution. Whereas your generation is, you bring up or you text or you whatever, and you discuss it and you you expect someone else to find the solution, whereas I think we were much more self-reliant. I think we were more resilient as a result because we had to just get on with it. And I think we probably dealt with death in much the same way. But there must have been people that you knew at that time who may have gone through the same thing as you, who didn't react in the way that you did, that couldn't cope with it alone and wanted to roll around the floor crying or, or talk about it at, huge, at great length. You know, Were they considered unusual and you know not to be dealing with it well and everyone should be dealing with it in the way that you and Julian Richard dealt with it which was maybe to 
Well, the, to not the awful talk. thing is, is that if there were people like that, I was unaware of them, and that may have simply been that I was insensitive, or that there weren't any. I don't know which it is, so I can't can't really tell you. Okay, today when someone that you know loses someone they love, they love, you're a big letter writer, and I think Mum's the same. In those letters, and you must have written lots and lots of those letters sadly now, are you telling stories about their parent or son or whoever it might be, a brother and sister or husband and wife? Are you, you know, what is in it? Is it a, I'm here to support you if you need me? Is it a, here's an, you know, I had this hilarious day with your dad and this is the story? What, what, oh, I know it's private obviously, but what is in those letters? I think there are two things. First of all, I think it's saying, you know, that you're sorry and you acknowledge they've had a loss. And I think it's secondly, trying to recount some experience or recollection or event which you have had with that person, which made them important to you. So, for example, Mo Fox, who died recently, and you know, I've known her since I was probably 12, so she's been, you know, she was never a really, really close friend, but she has been nonetheless part of, part of my life throughout. And so I wrote to her sister, Jilly, who I've known for as long, and I told her that the, the last time I ever spoke any time with Mo was driving down from the Gladstones in Mo's car to London. And when you're just the two of you in a car, it's it's very intimate. We had a lot of chats for the 10, 12 hour journey. And we established that we had very similar attitudes to a lot of our peer group. And it was a very, you know, it, it, was, it was a very intimate drive. So I told Jilly you know, how much I'd enjoyed that journey, how fabulous it had been, how I'd known Mo for a long time, and that I'd miss her a lot in the future, and that I was sorry that I hadn't seen her as much in the recent past as I would have liked. You know, we just never quite got it together to see her, and I'm sorry. So I hope that Julie will find that of comfort. I think the extraordinary thing, I mean, I do try and write when people die, and I, I write because I feel quite strongly about it. And the extraordinary thing is how seldom you get a letter back. Now, I don't want a letter, but I do hope that they appreciate it getting mine. Mm. Yeah, I think that's probably true of a lot of people. Did, did you reply to every letter that you got, or your, your mum yes. said she was writing? Yeah. I mean, it was, it was, it became, my mother got so many, I think because she was so young, um, and she replied, to every single one. She was a letter writer anyway, but she obviously wrote a different letter back for every single one. And it was probably emotionally quite hard work for her. And there were just the sheer weight of numbers. I mean, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. And I don't know whether it was, it was good for her doing those letters or whether or not it was just draining. Mm. But in either event, she was absolutely determined to do it, and she did. And is writing a letter your go-to, or there are some, when it is a closer friend, like you have with David, that you think, I need to call them? Or do you write a letter and then follow it up with a call? I think it's always... I mean, writing is obviously much easier. You can get out your pen and paper and write. Calling, you never quite know whether it's a good moment, whether you're going to say the right thing, whether they're going to be so upset they can't talk to you. And because I'm deaf, sometimes I can't hear. So I, I'm a bit, I'm a bit chicken. I remember when David's father died. After, obviously David died first and then David's father took his own life. And I remember being very uncertain as to whether what I should do 
about David's mother and whether I should bring her up. And I rang up as to Hillary's mother. They were they lived quite close to each other and they knew each other very well. And I said, you know, what should I do? Should I ring up David's mother or not? And you know, she was a different generation of that. I knew her very well and she knew what a close friend I'd been of David's and so on and so forth. And and she said, oh yes, you must ring her up. She'd love to hear from you. You must definitely ring her up. You must do it straight away. So I rang up David's mother. And of course she was wonderful. And I said how sorry I was. And she said, oh no, you don't need to be sorry. Nothing to worry about. No, no, it's perfectly right. He, um, he couldn't shoot anymore. He couldn't fish anymore. He had started to lose his memory, so he couldn't read anymore. So it's absolutely wonderful he's gone. No, no, you've done nothing to this at all. And it was so unexpected. Yeah. And it was such a relief. So we had a wonderful chat about it. And it was great. But I would never, well, first of all, I wouldn't have anticipated the, anticipated the response, which came as a bit of a surprise. So I, I, I don't know. I would still hesitate about ringing up somebody. I remember after David died that I think the only person, one or two people rang me up, the only one I really remember was Amadel Leslie Melville, who was David's first cousin, and they were very close. And she rang up and she said, you know, I'm really sorry, and I know how much it'll mean to you. And that was very touching because, you know, she she was a blood relative and they were very close. I mean, she she was a cousin rather than a sister, but David and her were very close. And so that, that was... That was hugely touching, and I've certainly never forgotten that. I guess because I can't imagine how nerve-wracking it is making that call from the caller's point of view. You know, you on the end of the phone, ringing the phone, ringing David's mum, must have been. You know, you must have had butterflies. And it's well, you know, in a way, you call it chicken. Writing a letter is easier. It's a one-sided conversation. You say it all, and you know, you don't feel like you're intruding, or you don't feel you're going to get them on the wrong day and have to think on your feet in terms of, you know, they might pick up in floods of tears, they might pick up in a good mood. So I guess in a way that would make it more touching and more significant if you do get a phone call because it's a flipping hard phone call to make. But for me, I'd always feel um, nervous that, oh, you know, someone else should, you know, I'm not an important enough person in their life to call. I'm sure they'll be surrounded by closer friends and family and, you know, I'll just write a letter and take a back seat. But maybe that is being a chicken, maybe that is cowardly, and actually, you know, you've got two phone calls there and you've not forgotten them. It's a, it's a, it's a difficult one, isn't it? I mean, I, Jules wouldn't take calls. Yeah. And I don't blame mum. So this How did a, you find out that? Did I, she say that, or did you find out through family? No, her best friend, Belinda Lockett, Greening, uh, moved up to Ben Furness and basically ran the house. Okay. And so she answered the telephone. So you know, there was that filtration system, as it were. So I suppose everybody's different, aren't they? And you don't know how they're going to react. And you, I think that at least the letter's going to get through and it's going to be read for what it is. And I suppose what is it more intimate having a conversation? It's of course it's, it's, it's I mean, the funeral is a is a bit of an odd one in a way because nobody's been invited. They're all there because they want to be there. The the family has, as I said earlier, sort of been through the worst of the grieving, and the people at the funeral haven't. So you're on this. You've got this inequality of of sorrow, and then. Somehow after the at, the, at the wake afterwards, it's all quite jolly and everybody's quite happy. Mm. So it's a, it's all a bit, it is a, you know, the whole question of, of how you grieve and when you grieve, I guess is, is different for different people. Yeah. One of the reasons I started doing this podcast, and a lot of people have asked me why, has been mainly because of mum. Mum in so many situations seems to be the person that is called during a disaster. If someone's mum suddenly has a stroke or someone suddenly loses someone or, you know, gets diagnosed with something, mum is the person that seems to get called. And she's going round, she's cooking for them and she's spending time with them. She's, you know, unbelievably inspirational in those 
situations. I, mean, I know that she writes a lot of letters similar to you in that. What was she like to you when you were going through this, when you lost your mum or when you lost your, you know, David? What was she like at home? Well, it's a good question, but in all honesty, I can't really remember. I and mean, what you have to remember about your mother is she is the most extraordinary communicator and she's a great listener and she remembers what she's told and she can recall that for a long, long time. And she is genuinely interested in people. And the other person like her is Jilly. And Jilly is you know, the punch bag for all sorts of people. She mops up after all sorts of people who have got problems. So they're both they're both there and they're very sensitive and they're very kind. And I suppose I perhaps just take it for granted that she was there and she looked after me and you know, we got through it together as it were. As I suppose in the same way that you know, when her mother died we she was going down every week when she wasn't well and spending a lot of time there and when she did die we, we both just got through it together and I think it was probably the same when when my parents died um, she did meet my father before he died which I'm pleased about but we obviously weren't going out together then and she was obviously when my mother died, she obviously we were married and she was very involved, but the, I suppose you look first to your siblings for support <laughs> rather than your spouse because your siblings obviously are sharing the same loss and us three siblings are very close. So I guess that the, our spouses were very aware what was going on in all three cases, but equally they knew that we were, us three were very close and that we, you know, we would share our feelings with each other or share our reactions with each other. And have you drawn together as a three with each parent lost? Have you got progressively closer having gone through those experiences or were you always close growing up? No, we weren't that close growing up because Jilly was seven years older and when you were young that's a huge age gap. We, but your grandfather was very shrewd in persuading us to go and stay with Jilly when we drove down from Scotland so we were all going to Worcester to stay the night on the way down and over time we have undoubtedly got closer and I think that ultimately, you know, your siblings are pretty fundamental. And you know, we we talk to each other every week. We we know what's you know what's going on in each other's lives. So we are yeah. I think we're we're going. I think we we are very close. And I think it's almost inevitable that you probably get even closer as you get older. And you've, you know you're. It's like old friends, isn't it? Old friends get more important to you as you, as they become older friends. How do you think the relationship you have with your dad and losing him when you were still young has affected the way that you are as a father yourself? Are you similar to him, you know, or, or have you taken, I like that part of him, I'm going to try and... Yes, I think inevitably, I think that, that you see which part of other human beings, whether they're your relatives or, or simply people you admire, you you see which bits you admire and you would like to try to replicate and those parts which you don't think are as important. So I think for my father, he was, he was always 100% honest. He was incredibly well-mannered, far better mannered than I was. He would be appalled that I don't stand up in the tube and give women my seat. 
he would be appalled by some of the things I do now, but the world's moved on. And he was extraordinary. And people, you know, I've met people who have said, your father had the most beautiful manners of any man I've ever met. And it, it would be wonderful to aspire to that, but I just was almost an unattainable level of perfection. I can't believe that, given that that is exactly what people tell me about you. Everyone talks about your manners to the point where I can never meet those standards. And one story in particular that's always stood out for me of you, which I remember thinking, oh my God, this man is so far beyond what I will ever be as a man, was do you remember when we went out fishing chips with Ferg to a restaurant on Clapham High Street? It must have been 10 years ago. And they... <laughs> The waitress brought the bill at the end of the meal and she'd undercharged us. 100 times out of 100, I would be walking out of that restaurant rubbing my hands together with glee. You, straight away, sent the bill back, told her she'd undercharged us, asked her to charge us the right amount and then paid. That is not a normal thing to do, but because, you know, doing the right thing and you know, it's good manners and it was, you know, I don't know, is it manners? I don't know if it's manners, it was just doing the right thing. You had to do it, which is unattainable from my point of view. Rubbish. <laughs> is it? I don't know. Who else would do that? We've also been three quid. We go, sweet, three quid, we'll get a free uh, tube home. Well, poor girl, I think what she might have had to go through, she... If there's been a mistake. Oh, yeah, well, really? But I imagine that having children of your own must make you think more of your relationship with your parents. That must have been an inevitable link. The day that Ferg was born, your first son, you must think, okay, what was my dad like? How should I be like as a father? Is that? Being brought up in the 50s, we weren't wealthy, but we had a cook, a nanny, a gardener. We, you know, we would see my father would. We'd see him in the evening. I suppose he'd come and say goodnight to us. It was, it was just different. It was. I mean, I don't imagine that we were loved any less, but it was. We were. There was a degree of. Of distance and the fact that you were surrounded by all these other people. I mean, the cook we had, Francis. You know, she spoiled me to death. And if I, I remember we, I had a race, we were challenged, I suppose by my parents, to get dressed quickly. And there was a prize for getting dressed first. And Ian, having said this, okay, off you go and get dressed, first one, let's see who's going to win. And as we left the room, Ian said, and you've got to get all your buttons done up, because he knew that I couldn't do up my buttons. So I ran off to the cook and got the cook to do up all my buttons. <laughs> you know, and so there was this sort of, you know, there was that sort of safety blanket that was around you, which was different from today. So, you, you know, there was, a, there was this extra layer of love and support, as it were. So you, you didn't, there wasn't the same proximity, I don't think, between sons and their fathers than perhaps there is today. Well, for sure, you, like your dad, are hot on manners and are big on honesty. How do you think you differ from him? What have you approached to fathering differently? I think that... The, you know, the world has undoubtedly moved on. I think that they were not blinkered, but they were inevitably quite fixed in their views on a lot of topics, and they would not entertain any deviation from that view. And I'm not, I don't think it's because they were narrow minded, I just think that there was, that was the way it was. And they, they would have, you know, if, if my father was to come back today, he would find Me Too, homosexuality, all this stuff unbelievably difficult to start to get his mind around. And it, you know, it has 
it's come from nowhere pretty quick. All the changes that we've seen in the last five or ten years, and I don't think that he would have been able to adapt to any of that at all. Hmm. What do you think he'd have made of me going to a clown school? He would have laughed <laughs> and been appalled. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's about fair. <laughs> I'd like to finish this point. He would have... He would have he would have blamed me for not dissuading me. Really? Yeah. That's crazy, isn't it? He, he would have seen it as an appalling career decision. <laughs> he would have seen it as, yeah, a madness, completely mad. To not go army and then into one of the uh, normal Go into a profession, jobs. get a qualification, you know. I mean, what, what is this? Yeah. Uh, I'd like to finish this podcast the way I've finished every episode, which is by asking two questions. The first is, what advice would you give to someone, young in particular, I suppose, to be relevant to this podcast, who's just lost a parent? I think what is important is never to forget the good times, because... The good, nobody can ever take the good times away. And by remembering the good times and the laughter and the happiness, you hold on to the essence of your memory of that person. So I think that is incredibly important. And I think that that's both comforting and positive. And I think that if you can do that, then rather than focusing on your own loss and wallowing in your own misery, then you, I think you'll come through it quite quickly. Right. Second is, what advice would you give to someone whose best friend has just lost a parent? What's the best thing a friend could do in that situation? Well, does your best friend really want advice from you? I'm not sure, I think you need to be a bit careful with giving advice to your best friend because you don't want to patronise them and you don't want them to feel that you're, you know better about their loss and bereavement than they do. So I think what your best friend wants is just your understanding and support and comfort. Thank you. You are an incredibly supportive father to me, much to the surprise of some of my friends' fathers. Having put me through Amberforth, which isn't exactly a cheap school, you didn't batter an eyelid when I said I wanted to go live in Paris and enrol at a clown school. You encouraged me to go for it, and this time last year I nervously told you and Mum that I wasn't going to get the flight back from my three-week holiday in Australia and I was going to go live there for a little while. Once again, you encourage me to go for it. Consciously or unconsciously, you finish every conversation with the same two words. Have fun. And I can't thank you enough for that approach. I've always said that anyone that feels any kind of warmth or compassion towards me or Ferg should thank you and Mum, because we've both simply been watching and copying you since the day we were born, and probably doing a poor impression. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your story with me today. Thank you for being my dad and thank you for being an extraordinary, ordinary person. I love you very much. Hey. Not at all. Not at all. Hey. Very moving. <laughs>